You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Research Saturday. I'm Dave Bittner, and this is our weekly conversation with researchers and analysts tracking down the threats and vulnerabilities, solving some of the hard problems of protecting ourselves in a rapidly evolving cyberspace. Thanks for joining us. Well, initially, um, it was a discovery made by Sulian and team. So they had identified this new variant of Ursniff. Uh, the team itself has, you know, for a long time, um, you know, uh, done research into that malware family. And I think that we even had some of the initial research um, on the last publicly disclosed variant, which was Saigon, uh, which was fairly short-lived. Our guests this week are Jeremy Kennelly and Sulian Lebeg from Mandiant. The research is titled From RM3 to LDR4, Ursniff Leaves Banking Fraud Behind. In June 2022, we catch uh, a new campaign wave. That's Sulian Lebeg. With... A classic pattern that it's a classic big mail where um, the content was uh, some human resource recruitment from a company called Michael Page. And Michael Page, for those who are unaware, uh, it was also the same kind of pattern used by RM3 marking malware. And the thing that catch us, it's we were supposed to see an RM3 payload for this marking malware. Weirdly, we saw that on our side, not our monitoring was able to identify it. So we did a, a deeper investigation into it and we realized that it was a totally new branch of this marking malware. And the fact it was even old, it's in fact, there was not anymore any parking features inside, but it was just remodeled as a simplified backdoor with very specific purposes. So this was a distribution campaign we would have previously expected to deliver uh, Ursniff RM3 and instead was delivering this new malware, correct? Exactly, exactly, exactly. Can you give us a little bit of the background here? I mean, uh, Ursniff itself uh, has been around for quite a while, yes? Exactly. Um, 
So basically, Ursniff, if you want to do some archaeology stuff, it started in 2006. And over the time, with a lot of upside down, um, a lot of things happen around the 20, in the 2010s, uh, years, some stuff goes a bit weird because the code was split into two big parts. So um, we call Ursniff V2 or Gozi V2. And this side was going into a very specific position. And on the same side, a fork called ISFB arrived into the market in 2012, 2013. And this branch is currently the only alive branch from Ursniff. And it seems that this specific branch was working into a very unique marketing model. It's like every person that wanted to get part of the code have to pay, it seems, the developing team kind of royalties to have their own specified fork. So all the Earthniff variants that you are seeing since 2013 uh, that have a very specific name means it's unique gang behind that have all the royalties behind. So if you are hearing, for example, ISFB Trimbot, ISFB AAP, or ISFB RM2, and now RM3 and Loader 4 are just basically a very unique gang behind that paid for having their unique piece of code just for them. Well, let's dig into this discovery here of LDR4. Um, can we walk through how someone would find themselves victim of this and, and then what happens next? I can give a, a brief beginning to this and then Suli and you can kind of pick it up if I drop anything. In theory, there's many vectors by which someone could become victim to the malware. The malware itself is uh, transparent to the delivery vector. However, what we ourselves have seen and historically what we've seen with other variants of malware used in a similar fashion is that generally the initial access vector is going to be via email, which is what we saw in this case as well. The one thing that's different um, as far as the outcome is that you know, following the trend that we've seen across many different malware families previously used for um, you know, credential theft or as banking trojans, is that a lot of that functionality has been stripped out. So it's more clear in this case that the users of this malware have shifted to a model where they're likely looking to obtain access to networks uh, rather than specifically looking to harvest credentials or um, you know, generate fraudulent uh, banking transactions uh, on victim hosts. Well, let's walk through the, the actual behavior here. I mean, someone finds themselves infected with this. What's going on on their system and what, what is it capable of doing? So basically, when you are infected, it's um, the first thing is doing the malware. It's to do some requests that are hard-coded into the payload itself. The requests are just basically some fingerprinting, checking if it's from a corporate network or no. And so it's a basic system info request. And thanks to this, the malware will push it into the C2 servers. And then uh, the ground behind can 
do just a simple triage to classify the boat as interesting and garbage, I would say like this. So the garbage one would be reselled into credential um, harvesting stuff. And the good one would be set for reselling the machine for um, lateral attacks for some ransomware gong. So they would give us, give the bots, they would give the machine to some red team affiliates ransomware gong. And then starting to do some, you know, the classic stuff for getting access step by step to the whole architecture of the whole network of the victim machine. If it's on the corporate network, then trying to do some credential investing or trying to steal all kind of juicy information. And when it's done, pushing the ransomware payload. This is how it's going right now. I think it's also important to note that as soon as, you know, effectively the way this is working is it's opening a door up to the attackers who sort of operate Loader 4 itself. So they have a panel that will allow them to sort of uh, make decisions about how they want to treat that access. And so everything that happens after Loader 4, although, you know, we've certainly seen many consistent trends across the tools and malware and, and, and general uh, behavior of the attackers that are engaging in post-exploitation you know, data theft and ransomware operations, you know, it is human-driven at that point. So it's difficult to speak with too much detail about what exactly will happen once they've decided that that access is worth monetizing. But, you know, it will follow a larger trend of these kind of, um, you know, uh, ransomware intrusions, which do, again, follow a similar arc but will be completely dependent to the particular operator. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. So this provides the, the back door into the system, and then from there, they can basically run whatever code they choose. Is that accurate? Technically, they can just do very specific command, like loading a DLL into the machine victim, starting to do some remote shell um, activities, like starting the, sh- the, the shell on the machine and do what they want on it. And the last type of command is just to run a simple CMD command, like, okay, I want the host name code. I want the, the IP config of the machine. I want uh, the host name of the machine. It's like they have a really simple terminal access on every kind of machine that have this malware installed. And, and this, these simple tools effectively give them arbitrary access. But it is a very simple set of tools that this this gives them access to. I see. 
So what do we make of, if anything, of, of the fact that they've sort of distilled this tool down? As, as you mentioned, they've, they've removed uh, some of the banking functionality in here, uh, making this a more simplified tool. Is, can we, is there anything to be made of that in terms of why they would be doing that? Mm, so just to answer this question, you have to understand that for years and years and years, the banking malware was a very lucrative business. And over the years, this lucrative business started to, of course, decline. And the, the thing is like also over the years, all the banking fraud has been basically monitored. And also there is a lot of solutions these days for banking customers to help them to Counter attacks, this kind of fraud. So over the years, the bad, the bad guys or the gang behind this kind of activities have their return on investments, their return of investments decreasing, and so they have to find basically more and more skilled people. They need a lot of money, so you have to pay them. Also, you have to pay the money laundry side, so you have to find some money mules, a manager behind, and then you have to you have to be sure that the money laundry will go on in the correct way. So you have to think that this budget is rising. And on the other side, because this budget is rising, the money behind all this business will decrease. So over the years it was okay. And it reached at a point or it was not interesting to do it. And with the ransomware coming and rising over the time, they realized that, okay, by removing all this money side and all this activity about recruiting skilled guy for trying to fraud, they remove everything and they have just basically now one single thing. Try to provide a very specific malware that has that give access to the red team affiliates ransomware gang. And just by having a percentage of getting accesses to it to get the ransom after deployed is more interesting than all the process I explained before. Because there is just much less people involved and somehow it's, it could be safer for them to have less mistake and also uh, less processes into the pipeline to get the money clean or to do the money laundry because now it's there is not anymore any transaction to be do to be to be done. It's just cryptocurrency stuff and then just going to any kind of companies that can switch your Bitcoin into the currency you want and the work is, the work is done. I'm curious, so in terms of, of organizations protecting themselves against this, what are your recommendations? What are some of the best ways to prevent uh, falling victim here? I think from a high level, not, you know, it doesn't, it hasn't really changed the model overall. This is, this is most notable because it's an evolution of a historically very important fairly prevalent uh, banking malware, which just in it, in itself is following a larger trend. So we've seen, um, you know, you know, for example, you know, with uh, Drydex and TrickBot, which were 
highly complex, fully featured, you know, uh, intensely developed banking malware. We didn't see them get rebuilt in exactly this way, but we did see them evolve to get used in this same way. And so I think what this does is it just further highlights an overall trend of malware previously used for banking and now sort of shifting to be, you know, uh, you know, one of the last bastions out there kind of shifting to a model where it's now, you know, very clearly uh, being intended for used uh, to provide access. I think, you know, kind of expanding on the previous answer as well a little, I think that, you know, it was also clear that the developers behind RM3 uh, or the, the, you know, that, that malware, because of the deprecation of Internet Explorer, which it relied on so heavily for much of its functionality, you know, it was required that they rebuild um, their ecosystem. And so this, this sort of rebuilding process presumably gave them a chance to kind of rethink what their objectives were, what their market is. And, you know, they, they clearly showed by what they ended up with as a tool here that access is their objective. And kind of pivoting back um, as far as uh, defending yourself, uh, what to expect. I think that, you know, it's still this stage of the attack. You know, you know there's lots of sort of generic approaches that a lot of practitioners take, which are still important, um, you know, around sort of general, um, you know, uh, network hygiene, ensuring that you have, um, you know, appropriate defenses at the email layer that you're uh, detonating payloads and all of these things still remain important. But one, you know, I think that from my perspective there, you know, it's once, once they get into the network, that's where we start to see a lot of this activity converge. And so there's a, uh, it's also really important that defenders pay attention to sort of not just the way all this activity is highly distinct, but the way it is all similar. And so we see lots of use of things like, again, as Sulian stated, Cobalt Strike, uh, Brutal Rattel, other attack frameworks like that, you know, uh, common tools for privilege escalation um, or um, lateral movement, uh, things like AD find, things like, um, you know, exfiltra- common exfiltration tools such as R-Clone, um, you know, uh, legitimate utilities, um, such as PS Exec and Bloodhound. There's lots of sort of common points of, um, you know, common points that attackers touch networks with um, that are common across all of this activity. So I think that answering questions about, you know, defense, individual cases like this is challenging since I think it doesn't significantly change the threat landscape, but it does give us an opportunity to kind of at least highlight the, the ways that this activity is similar across cases. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think I think the bigger picture that you point out here, Jeremy, just that, you know, we are seeing or we have seen this this evolution uh, and I guess to some degree some specialization here of, you know, jettisoning the parts of uh, these malware families that are no longer necessary. It also follows another trend we see not universally, but in cases I think where actors are rebuilding their toolkits, we do see them move towards simplicity. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's a trend that has actually existed for quite a long time, right? I think even if you look at earlier banking Trojans, um, you know, including RM3 itself, 
um, that sort of had a modular plug-in based architecture where much of the functionality of the malware was loaded post-exploitation or post-execution. I think that, you know, that was sort of one of the early attempts at, you know, simplification. And I think we see that further here, right? We see a, we see a change towards, okay, well, maybe we're not looking for a big piece of malware that can do anything. We're looking to obtain access. And so we will focus on the functionality that allows us to meet that objective. And I think we've saw, you know, it's, we saw something also fairly similar with the evolution from, um, Again, this is a different group of cyber criminals, but the the shift from using TrickBot to Bazaar Loader, and then furthermore, a subset of those actors are now using, I think, what's publicly called Bumblebee or We Track a Shell Sting, where we again see a further shift of, you know, um, sort of from large, complex malware families down to smaller, more purpose-built uh, loaders to uh, enable network access. When, when that is the sort of the, the, the core objective. Our thanks to Jeremy Kennelly and Sulian Lebeg from Mandiant. The research is titled From RM3 to LDR4, Ursniff Leaves Banking Fraud Behind. We'll have a link in the show notes. And now, a message from CyberBit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need CyberBit. CyberBit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills, all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com cyberwire. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Rachel Gelfin, Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karpf, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week.